This is Minda Wilson with Urgent Care. I'm very excited to welcome Kanyada Berry, who is a genealogist and uh, is on the Genealogy Roadshow on PBS and is an author and is uh, an expert on everything genealogical. Welcome. Uh, yes. Well, thank you. I'm happy to be here. Uh, well, I try to be expert on everything genealogical, but, uh, you know, there's a lot out there to uncover. So um, I'm always learning, but excited to, you know, to be here and share my thoughts and have this discussion. So how did you first get interested so I started doing genealogy um, when I was in law school, and most people start doing genealogy actually on their own families, right? It's a natural thing. You want to find your family history, but I actually was dating someone in law school. He's an ex-boyfriend now, but I was dating someone, and he had a very unusual um, middle name, which was his family's surname, mm-hmm. and that was the surname of Dwelly. so that's D-W-E-L-L-E, and I thought, huh, well in between torts and contracts law, let me just kind of look them up, right, and see, because he said, oh, there were prominent, you know, uh, preachers and uh, doctors in the South. And Mm -hmm. I found an article, um, you know, this was in, gosh, I can't even remember, probably like 99, no, probably like 96-ish or something. And so I go um, look at a database and I find an article on, I believe it's his second great aunt, um, who was a doctor, in Atlanta, and she opened, like, one of the first um, hospitals or for um, OBGYN clinics, let me say, for mm-hmm. uh, African-American women in Atlanta. Her name was Georgia Dewelle. So from Georgia's entry in this biographical database when I was at the Library of Michigan in Lansing, uh, that's where I would study, I found a book that kind of referenced her father who was enslaved, and his name was George Dewelle. And my ex-boyfriend's name was George as well. And so when I went to that, kind of went a step further, I found a biographical entry on him that listed his father, uh, a man named C.J. Cook, uh, who was a white man, his mother, Mary Thomas, who was enslaved, and it talked about his childhood. And I was hooked because I just couldn't imagine finding that much information on one person, like in two paragraphs, right? His birth date, his, his parents' names, where he was born, and how he got the surname of Dwelly. And so from that point forward, I thought this is the most fascinating thing. And I just started becoming a genealogy detective, I guess. Well, it is, it is being a detective. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Because you're, you're looking for clues and, you know, having the law background is really helpful because um, a lot of the records I work with are in courthouses, but also a lot of the evidence that you gather, right, to prove or disprove these family stories is sort of like circumstantial evidence, right? You're pulling together different pieces of history and documents to really uh, create a story or kind of tell someone's life story, who you didn't know but you're related to. Now, it seems like genealogy and genetics are sort of like inter- starting to intertwine. So... How 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 do they sort of, how do they sort of play off each other now? Yeah, so um, with DNA tests being you know the consumer DNA test um, being you know widespread and very popular, right? With um, just with the amount of uh, advertising you get from either Ancestry Twenty Three and Me and other companies, uh, Family Tree DNA, um, 
it is something that people do. It's, it's, we live in a, I guess, kind of a society of instant gratification at some point, right? Mm-hmm. And digging through old records requires some type of patience. So I think with DNA and genetics, it becomes easier to, you know, take a swab or spit in a tube and send it off to a lab and come back, you know, four to six weeks later with a very nice um, kind of chart that tells you, connects you to your ancestral home, right? And mm-hmm. from there, you know, I get a lot of people that have done their DNA and they come to me and they're like, okay, well, now what, right? Because with DNA, you never know what you're going to find. That's genealogy in general, right? But with DNA, you more people have a surprise come up. And what I mean by that is, uh, you know, maybe a non-parental event or they discover a half-sibling or, you know, there's just so many different things because you have mm-hmm. those matches, right? So with any DNA test you take, the database that you do, so if you take a test at Ancestry, they're going to match you to everyone in Ancestry, right? Mm-hmm. So what will happen is you will come up with cousins. So typically, you know, I've tested my, you know, myself, my mom, my grandparents, like, you know, a bunch of people, right? So, um, but what will come up is that you will have uh, your DNA matches, and they could be second cousins, third or fourth cousins are typically the most popular ones that pop that come mm-hmm. up. But I've known people, um, especially if you're adopted, that have taken DNA tests. And I know a woman who took a DNA test in Ancestry and immediately found her father, like immediately. Wow. Like, that was a first. She she hit the button that said your results are ready, and he was the first person to pop up. So um, that is that can happen, and you know I, I think it's it's good for people, but also you never know what you're going to find on the other end of that, right? That person may not be as receptive as you are in trying to uncover your family history and try to really, you know, figure out your own story. But it's interesting because it seems like the genetics can give you a match sort of through this database, but you do, you do a lot of research, which sort of it informs what happens. So how is, how is that how how do you know what to research, and is that what your uh, toolkit does? Does it teach you how to do the research to find your family history? Yeah, so I wrote the Family Tree Toolkit, and it does teach you how to find um, your family history, right? So it's a beginner's guide, but it's also for folks that have been doing it for a while, and they need, um, you know, kind of help, right? Uh, one of the uh-huh. things I kind of, my approach to writing the Family Tree Toolkit was what would I have wanted when I was sitting at the Library of Michigan, you know, more than 20 years ago, um, trying to find out George's family and then eventually my family, right? So mm-hmm. I looked at it and I kind of wrote it in that way as a, as a guide. Um, mm. But to your question around the DNA piece of it, yeah, you get these tests, you get these matches, um, as the as more people start to test, right, the more matches you'll get. Um, you know, there's and also, but there's like who, like what is the ancestry you have in common, right? So for example, I take a DNA test and then I match with a third cousin. Well, I have to find our most recent common ancestor. If they have a family tree, and they're the name they've done research in that family tree, right? So the family tree is public. They've done enough research then we can match, right? We may have a, the same name, right? And then looking at their tree, I can say, oh, this is how we're connected. But a lot of people do DNA tests and they don't have trees 
So you don't know who your most recent common ancestor is. So that's where the genealogy comes in, right? Because you still have to do the research to figure out how you're related to this person. So wait, 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 wait. So what's a tree, a family tree? Oh, a family tree, yes. Yeah. So a family tree is where typically you start with yourself and kind of work backwards, right? So um, you can put one, uh, all the DNA companies allow you to create a tree, right? So 23andMe, mm-hmm. I think, does it as well, family tree DNA. And what you can do is you create a tree, and from that tree, you say, okay, I'm Kenyatta, my father was Gordy, my mother's Denise, and then you, and I go to their, my grandparents, and then my great-grandparents, and so on and so forth, right? So I go back as far as possible as I can. Mm-hmm. And if I make that tree public, meaning anyone can see it, then through the DNA test, they can say, okay, well, Kenyatta, you match with, you know, Judith Tompkins, who's one of my cousins in D.C., and how we match is our third, my third great-grandparents, I believe her second great-grandparents, are Emily and James Sellers, right? So that's how we match. But we both have to have a family tree that's available that they can say this is how you guys match. And that's how you get the most recent. Yeah, that's how you get that most recent common ancestor. But if that doesn't exist, and I will say, at least in my experience, um, a lot of times it doesn't exist. um, Then, because people will take a DNA test to get the pretty charts, but they won't follow through to the next step of actually doing the research. Then you, as the genealogist or the family historian, has to go in and figure out how you're related to that person. Interesting. So, Mm -hmm. so, so how, so like I see these stories and you find, you, you really find out the history of somebody. So like I was looking and you found out how, how someone was, it it was part of uh, their family history was part of a revolution with, I think it was Jake Rivera or someone and other people. How do you, how do you trace them back to these historical figures? How do you know? How do you follow that? A couple of things. So if you think of with the military records, right, and you're tracing them back to, um, you know, the Revolution or the American Revolution or the War of 1812 or to the Civil War, World War I, World War II, um, it is very interesting, right? So the, uh, there's a site called Fold3, which focuses primarily on military records, and Fold3 is owned by Ancestry. Um, but you have different record sets. You will have uh, – service records, right? So where did they serve? What, you know, um, how, how long did they serve? You also have pension records. Um, most of the Revolutionary War records, I believe, are um, online at Fold3, somewhere at Ancestry as well. Um, but mm-hmm. the pension records will tell a story, right? That's, you know, whether they got land or anything like that, right, um, from serving the revolution. The other thing is that you can look at the pension records from uh, War of 1812 are also available online. Um, when we get to these military records, especially with the Civil War, um, my, my largest, one of my largest chapters is military, right, because mm-hmm. uh, the Union soldiers, their military records, right, they're, not their service records, so their service records, the same when they were mustered in and mustered out, are going to be available online but their actual pension records for Union soldiers are going to be at the National Archives in D.C., okay? Those will tell a complete story of their life. We had a a story on Genealogy Roadshow where we were able to, um, you know, I think a a widow of a Civil War soldier, uh, African-American, was able to buy the home that their family kind of like grew up in from the pension record, but she described the entire genealogy, 
right, in that pension file. Pension files can be the up, upwards of 200 pages because they're going wow. back and forth. And there's different laws that were passed, right? You know, if it was just a soldier, if they were injured, if it was a widow. So these things went on and on. That's why it's one of the biggest chapters I have, just kind of studying that stuff. Um, but if they're part of the Confederate uh, states of uh, the Confederacy, then their records, their pension records are going to be in that state where they served. So if they were in Alabama or Mississippi or South Carolina, their pension records will be at the state level. That's interesting. So you were involved in this uh, 1619 project, and mm-hmm. that must have been quite quite a, I mean, so you were, how do you, you were able to trace people back to 1619 that that really didn't have a lot of records so how did you go about doing that and what is the 1619 project first i guess yeah yeah so let's start with that the 1619 project um was conceived by uh, nicole hannah jones who works with the new york times and um She's a, a journalist, and I, her area, um, I believe, has been – she's done a lot on education um, throughout her career. But she tells the story of there's a book called Before the Mayflower, which I have as well, and it talks about 1619, right, when the first 20, I think 20 or so Africans showed up uh, to the Virginia, to the colony of Virginia, right, and they became – you know, they showed up as, and they were enslaved. So that's kind of where the project stems from, to tell that story, to recognize the 400 years, that to, let, to not let 1619 go by without people recognizing the significance of it. And as an African-American and as an African-American genealogist, you know that date, you, you understand it, right? Um, so that was the importance of the project, and really what the project did was a collection of essays that really described how, uh, the system of slavery still impacts uh, Americans today, um, whether it's health care, whether it's uh, sugar um, that we have, whether it's the way the highways were built, um, how we manage people, uh, capitalism based on plantation system, all of that, right? So really go music, so it goes through a lot of different essays and uh, poems and discusses that. My involvement in the project, however, was really focused on four um, students from Howard uh, University Law School. So for these four students, uh, what we did is research their family history. And I didn't take them all the way back to 1619, but I was able to take them back far enough to get into their enslaved ancestors, right? So what we did Mm -hmm. is we were able to get beyond 1870 and what we call the 1870 brick wall. And why we call it the 1870 brick wall is because 1870 was the first federal census to enumerate the formerly enslaved, right? So those 4 million that were freed upon emancipation, right? So that's one of the things that most people get back to 1870. So going beyond 1870 requires you to do a couple of things. One, you have to understand Reconstruction and um, look at the Freedmen's Bureau records, right? So the Freedmen's Bureau was established to kind of integrate the formerly enslaved uh, into society as free people as well as kind of, you know, repair sort of the damage done from the Civil War, right, to kind of bring the union together. And those records uh, give you things like uh, labor contracts. I found a labor contract from my fourth great-grandfather, and that meant now he's being paid for the work that he used to do as an enslaved person, right, so they had to have labor contracts. Um, Marriages. 
the enslaved were not allowed to be married, right? So therefore, they now had to legitimize these marriages or these cohabitations or these relationships they had so that their children were legitimate and those children could inherit property down the road, right? Because before, slaves could not inherit property, they couldn't get married, they couldn't, you know, if they were known to read or write, that could be a death sentence or you could be whipped or beaten. So all these things that they were denied were now available to them. But how do they claim them and who's going to reinforce that? And so the Freedmen's Bureau was part of the War Department because these were the South was technically like a military zone, right, because you had military officers that were in the former Confederate states trying to kind of make sure these things um, – were enforced. So those records, which are available online at familysearch.org, help you get beyond that 1870 brick wall. So with the 1619 project, I was able to get those four students beyond slavery, right, to tell them the story. And, you know, they had their stories similar to what happens on Genealogy Roadshow. They have the mm-hmm. stories they heard in their families, and they bring those to us. And what we do is we prove or disprove them, right? And mm-hmm. they had stories of land. They had stories of folks that served in office during Reconstruction, um, and they were from all over, you know. And it was really a – I loved doing it um, because I always want to connect people with their past. I think it helps you. Once you understand who you are and where you came from and what your ancestors endured. You know, you look at this year, 2020, right, and what we're going through right now um, with COVID and everything else, and you say to yourself, well, this is tough, this is hard, but I know that I can get through it because my ancestor did so, right? I have that strength and that resilience from them. And that was really – you know, the one thing I, I loved about that project and being able to bring that to those those law students who were probably now passed the bar and gone on to work. They all had jobs and everything like that. Um, but, yeah, and and I really – I didn't know at the time when I was doing it because I had worked with Nicole before. I didn't realize how big the project would be. So that was one of the mm. big surprising things for me because I had no idea. I was just a genealogist, you know, connecting people to their past. Right, and there and then Georgetown did a similar project. Mm-hmm. Which yeah, so, has had yeah. a huge impact. Yeah, the the two seventy two. So the Georgetown two seventy two. Yeah. So then, that's a very interesting um, project because I uh, actually know the gentleman who started that, and um, he was the Georgetown um, alum, and they had heard the story, but no one really wanted to talk about it, right? Because I found since I started doing this more than twenty years ago, that in, and then focusing on enslaved ancestral research that a lot of people don't want to talk about slavery, right? They, don't, they didn't mm-hmm. want to talk about it. It was a, a tough subject. Let's just leave the past in the past. And it's hard to do that when you're a person that's a descendant of that system, right? right. So I can't leave my past in the past because it's part of who I am, right? right. So, right. Um, and that's part of my identity. And with Georgetown, that project, you know, it was able to, you know, kind of identify and you have the document that's, that that showed these 272 people sold down the river, as we say, but during the domestic slave trade, to Louisiana. Like, that project is so important because one of the biggest challenges we have in doing this type of work is understanding who the last enslaver was, understanding where our family came from if they were sold down the river during the domestic slave trade, and having a document that says these are all the people, these are the family members, you know, the husband, the kids, the wife, whatever, um, and then where they were sold to is incredible. 
because mm. that type of work takes years and years to uncover because you got to figure out who they were on, who, you know, the last slaver was, and then where did they, where did they go? Where did, you know, how did they, did they die and they're in a will or did they die up in civil war? And so you're not going to have as many records or not, I'd say that it's not going to be as easy to find them because if they're, um, you know, in a will or an estate, they're, par- they're property, so they're going to be inventoried. And you can look at that document amazing. and be able to find your ancestor. Mm-hmm. It's amazing that a human being could be on somebody's inventory list. I That just blows my mind. Just it is. And, mind. you know, one of the things that I, I kind of feel like going to law school, I didn't know that this would be you know, be, have these careers or <laughs> do things. I didn't know this would be what I'd be doing full time. Right. When I, you know, left my software job three mm-hmm. years ago. Um, but going to law school has helped me actually be able to do this work because it is quite amazing and powerful and frightening and sad all at the same time to see a value attached to someone that is your relative. Right. Right. And being a lawyer, we're taught to remove emotion from a situation, right? So for me, I see it. I live it. I breathe it every day of my life. I can remove that emotion from it. I'm not heartless, but I can for the moment to get the work done, say this is what it, this is, this is, what it is right? This is part mm-hmm. of our history. It's part of American history. And to make sure that I'm able to connect people to their ancestors, I need to be able to work through this. But also – understand how hard it is for an individual researcher, for that family, that genealogist, but on both sides, right? It's hard for people who find out that their family was enslaved, but also people who find out their family enslaved other people, right? It's, a, it's not easy uh, because there's a certain level that I have found just in my own experience in lecturing and things like that. Um, those who find out their family enslaved other people – they're they're very ashamed of it and they're very Mm -hmm. emotional about it and i always say the big thing here is what we want to do is you want to take that information that you find and help reconnect those family bonds that were broken through slavery right so don't think of it as i'm ashamed this happened look at that inventory look at that will look at that list and say how can I share this? Because if we come together to make those family connections, which is all we want to do, right, is find our people. That's why we all do this, right, to find our heritage and understand our ancestry. And if you can help make that a little bit easier for me or for someone else uh, in the records you find, then that in itself is, is enough, right? And so um, I really encourage people to, to, to look at it from that lens and because that's really what we're trying to do. Because right, but those, it seems, yeah, it mm-hmm, seems right. that so there's so much divisiveness now. You know, mm-hmm. people people are angry. People on on all sides of the equation are angry, and and it seems like this could be a tool not just to create divisiveness. You know, where you, you somebody learns they were a slave, or somebody learns they were a slaveholder, but it seems like it could be a tool used to bring people together. Don't you think? Absolutely. Absolutely it can be a tool to bring people together. And that's, that, is, that is the essence of, of what I try to preach, right? Because, yes, it can be a tool to bring people together because, again, what we're trying to do here is reconnect 
the family, build that family tree that we talked about earlier, right? So I get to my third great grandparents who were enslaved or my, you know, whatever. And if I can find, um, you know, Dr. John W. Taylor, who had a labor contract with my fourth great grandfather, Louis Carter, if I could find information from descendants of him in Virginia, in Culpeper County, in Madison County, then that would help me kind of understand more about Lewis, maybe find out his parents and things like that, and we can come together and share a story. It's not me coming to you to shame you, to say how could you do this or how could your family do this. It Mm -hmm. is really a way for us to kind of bring something um, that, Bring bring something that to come together to develop something that brings us joy to tell a story, and that story is part of American history. And I really feel like doing your genealogy, uncovering these things about your ancestors, could help you really understand things. And for everyone that's angry and all of this stuff, put that that energy that you're using in anger and put that energy into uncovering your past into uncovering your family history, into knowing who you are, because that will help you quiet, in my opinion, quiet that anger mm-hmm. and help yeah. you bring people together, I think. Right, but also it's, it should be a point of pride, because if you think about it, if you look back on your on your family, what they've accomplished, if they can't, if they started as slaves and, and now like your and they, and now like yourself, they're a lawyer or a doctor, an Indian chief, whatever. That, that's a pretty, that's a pretty big accomplishment, even in, in, in a relatively few numbers of generations. Yeah, exactly. It's it's something to be prideful about, you know, yeah, it is. I am look, I I am very 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 proud of my ancestors and I will I I make it my mission to tell their story anytime I can. <laughs> I anytime I write uh anything I do. Even in my book, even as a as a how-to guide, I still have stories about my ancestors in there, right? On both sides of my family. Um whether it's their draft registration card for World War 1 or World War 2, whether it's a story about a church um that they mm-hmm. went to in Virginia. And it is, I, I am so proud of everything that they accomplished, what they did and the decisions that they made, you know. I mean, and one really important thing for me is that my third great-grandfather, James Philip Sellers, voted in 1867 at the age of 21, two wow. years out of slavery. He voted because the, you know, the former Confederate states had to adopt the Reconstruction Amendments of the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment, and so they had to have a, you know, new state constitutions. And as part of that, he voted for this constitutional convention in October. He just got married earlier that year. You know, he was just 21. So for me, I'm like, if he did that, it was the threat of violence, just coming out of enslavement and into freedom and into promise and into a new life with a new bride, then there's nothing I can't do. There's nothing I can't do. And so for me, that is my, that is my inspiration. And I want everyone to have that because I think that's so important. Right. So people want to learn more about you or, or your show or, um, the, or the toolkit, the family tree toolkit, what's the best way for them to find that information? Yeah, so the best way is actually to go to my website, which is KenyattaBerry.com. So it's going to be K-E-N-Y-A-T-T-A-B-E-R-R-Y.com. And that has everything, the toolkit, uh, any events I have coming up virtually, of course, um, 
any uh, my newsletter, blog posts, if they want to contact me as well for research, uh, anything I'm doing, that's the best way to kind of keep up with me. And that will also have all of my social media handles as well. Wow, that's fantastic. So uh, this has been fascinating. I, I appreciate you coming on the show. I'd like to have you back again um, and, and talk some more. Um, this is Minda Wilson for Urgent Care. <laughs> 